I mean, it's always good to be with you, but I'm especially grateful this morning to John Mark and the elders for allowing me to bring the word this morning. It's a, it's a privilege, always. Um, what powerful text, just even as we're reading this and reflecting this, I'm thinking, I was just talking to the brother about this. I mean, there's so many things that, that could be said here today. It's not always the case in this time of year that I can get out and go for a walk, but when the when the weather permits, uh, I love going for walks. I'm one of those weird people. I just love the pace of just kind of walking through a town or walking through our neighborhood. And uh, very often I can talk joy into going out on a walk with me. Again, when the weather permits, sometimes we bundle up a little bit if we're just really eager to get out. But usually when it's nice weather, we will. And uh, we'll just chat, catch up on things. And, and just, again, feels good to get out of the house, occasionally get some fresh air. And we were out for a walk the other day. And I mean, in our neighborhood where we live, we're kind of on the edge of town. And so we can usually see a few stars in the sky, but usually not a lot, uh, probably more than you could here in the heart of the city, certainly more than where I would have grown up. Um, but 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 one night, this was just maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago at most, we were walking and I guess the conditions were just right and the stars were especially bright. And we both kind of noticed it around the same time we come up around our neighborhood through this kind of hill and we can look up and we both just said, wow, look at the sky tonight. It was it was beautiful, gazing at the stars as they sort of were manifest before us. Uh, I can still remember the thrill. I'm sure many of you can relate to that thrill of first getting your driver's license. I don't want to tell you how long ago it was. It actually kind of hurts my soul a little bit to tell you how long ago it was. And uh, but I remember that joy. I mean, I would drive around just for no reason, like just kind of cruising around and uh, and exploring, not necessarily long drives, but just within our little area. And especially once I got my own car, I would go out and do that and kind of explore. And basically for us, if you wanted to get outside of the city, you went up into the foothills. There were these these foothills, not huge, two, two to four thousand feet, kind of on the edge of the city. The whole valley was really densely developed. But in the hills, uh, they were and still to this day are, are just are not very developed. And so you could get up there and find some paths uh, and get a great view of the valley. And I learned at night, if you went up there... Uh, you could actually see the sky. You couldn't see any sort of stars or anything from where we live. There's just so much light pollution. Um, but we'd go up there into the foothills, and uh, and you could see. I, I loved the contrast of seeing the dark hills. You couldn't see anything in the hills, no houses, no cows, nothing. But then you had sort of a glow from the valley and the brightness of the sky. You could just sort of gaze there, sort of mesmerized uh, for long periods of time. And I would do that. I remember sort of even laying on the hood of my car and looking up into the sky. It's not at all surprising to me, either when I'm walking in my neighborhood or when I think back to those days, sort of laying on the hood of my car and gazing up uh, through the foothills. It's not at all surprising to me that people would look to the sky for a sign. In our main text today, Matthew chapter 2, which Darwin's just read for us, the, the story centers around this image of light. And then later there'll be a contrast with darkness. A a bright star appeared in the eastern sky and spread the news of a very special birth. Through the Advent season, over the last several weeks, we were sort of anticipating in this period uh, and then celebrated on Christmas the birth of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We were just singing about that. A central metaphor in kind of this whole season is that, light, and that's the Advent candles that we've had, right? Which I love that we do that. And each week, lighting one of these candles. And the Gospel writer Matthew, and this is true of John as well, and certainly other, other writers in the New Testament, but certainly here in Matthew, he loves this metaphor of light. 
We won't read it, but he uses it again prominently in chapter 4 and in some other places. Light. This past week, Christians all over the world, as John Mark was just speaking about, they celebrated the, the Feast of Epiphany, most on January 6th. And it commemorates, it commemorates how the, the light of Christ was manifested, yes, to the children of Israel, but then here even to the larger world of the Gentiles, symbolized in this coming of the wise men from the east. Although our, our text from Isaiah 60 is going to kind of be in the background this morning, I'm going to reference it a few times, but I'm really going to focus on Matthew chapter 2. And here the light of Christ was manifest to and received by the Gentiles, those outside of Israel, those who were far off. Perhaps ironically, though, the same light, as much as it's received and sought eagerly by those who are far off, somewhat ironically, the light is opposed by the one actually on the throne in Jerusalem, namely Herod, the professed king of Israel. So we have this strange contrast. Before I really get into the word, I want to say a word of prayer just briefly. Would you bow with me? Let's ask for the Lord's help this morning. Our God in heaven, I do thank you. Lord, for your word, the way it's already spoke to me and spoke to us through the reading of the word, through in many ways singing the word. Lord, I pray now through the word preached, God, that you might stir our hearts, God, that you might challenge us, that you might encourage us, Lord, that you might shine your light this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I've titled this message, They Have Seen a Great Light. I'm going to basically follow three kind of natural movements through the narrative this morning. Number one, wise men saw a light and they sought a king. I think a good place to start just naturally is this question about the wise men. Who are they? We're all familiar with them. We have little figurines of them on our tables. They're during the Christmas season. We have little nativities that would characterize the wise men. This word that we transliterate, magi, in fact, even as we were reading in Spanish earlier, magoi, it's, it's, it's really magos, it's really the same thing in Spanish, it's transliterated. Uh, it seems to refer to sages or to wise men in sort of a broader sense. But here the context seems to be those who are gazing up and interpreting or gaining knowledge from the stars. It's basically some kind of form of astrology, probably. I'll come back to that. The text doesn't give us a number of how many there were, although it's commonly depicted as three, right? The number three very likely originated with Origen. He goes back all the way into the ancient church. He was a very important Christian leader and theologian. But it seems that he probably is choosing the number three just because the three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, myrrh, kind of one per person. And he might be right. Uh, but but there, there seem, there, it's quite possible there was a larger entourage, could have been two people. I mean, we ultimately don't know, but I guess it's good that we only have three, because imagine if we had a dozen. I don't think that would fit on our coffee tables. So, so three is perfectly good. Let's, let's roll with three. In Latin America, the Magi have commonly uh, been regarded as kings from the east, right? There's even the holiday, right? Really a, a feast day, Dia de Reyes, which was celebrated yesterday, feast of the kings or often feast of three kings. So the number three there is common as well. I actually had a discussion with my cousin when I was in Mexico a few weeks about this. And he said, so the text doesn't say kings? And so we had, we had this whole discussion about it. 
In Matthew's account, at least, they're not described as kings. But again, it's not surprising that this tradition developed. I mean, for a couple of reasons. Number one, they kind of have this regal aura, don't they? Right? Think about the kinds of gifts that they're bringing. But then more than that, Isaiah 60, verse 3, does speak of kings. So our other text does reference. So it makes sense. And even the fact that the lectionary ties these together, this is a long tradition. It may go back as far as the 6th century that these, these figures are associated uh, with sort of a regal or kingship. These wise men were possibly Zoroastrian, which is a, was a very prominent religion in what's now Iran, what was Persia. They're from the east, certainly, again, Persia perhaps, Babylon, maybe even Arabia. But the text, I mean, it's very clear ultimately what Matthew, that Matthew could have told us where they were from, ultimately, if the Holy Spirit had wanted him to. But the point here is fairly clear, that they represent the Gentiles, those beyond Israel, those who had been without God's special revelation, those who had been without his light. Centuries before Matthew wrote, Isaiah prophesied that people would come from the east to behold what God was doing. It's in the text that we just read in verse 6 of chapter 60 in Isaiah. This is actually where we get the image of camels, too. If you look back there, it says that a multitude of camels. So again, we've got the wise men coming in on their camels. You know, it's interesting. One of the most, and I was thinking about this uh, even just this morning, one of the most persistent misconceptions that I have to overcome with my students, my students relates to this very point here. This idea that Israel is kind of super, kind of inbred here and has no thought of what's going on in the wider world and that it was never kind of any imagination that God would bring in Gentiles. It's really this persistent idea that I really, with each class that comes in, I really have to challenge it. I mean, just a casual look at the Psalms overcomes this. The very Psalm we just read, Psalm 67, really, I think, challenges this in a significant way. Read the prophet Amos. And, of course, Isaiah. It really challenges this idea, that, that this, this misconception that Israel had no thought of what God was doing in the rest of the world. Rather, there's so many places speaking about the nations streaming into Zion. Let all the nations rejoice, and etc., and etc. Well, Epiphany is this opportunity. It reminds us that God was working beyond the people of Israel at this moment and actually is bringing in the Gentiles. I noted that the wise men were probably some sort of astrologers. And this might seem strange to us. But the idea is this. It's that God directed them through a means that they were primed to receive. That shouldn't surprise us. I mean, as one commentator says, God worked in a manner tailored to their circumstances. They were inclined to be looking for knowledge in the stars. And so God uses a star to direct them. Not surprising at all. They were far from God, but God brought them near. Gregory the Great, a 6th century leader in Rome, a bishop in Rome, he reflects on this text and he says that a star preached of Christ before the human Christ could speak. He reflects on this even further about this idea that an angel speaks to the Hebrews. And you notice that the angel actually comes and actually speaks verbally to the to the shepherds. But God uses a star to guide Gentile wise men. There's a powerful point here 
that really impressed upon me as I studied the text this week. In, in the opening chapters of Matthew, really Matthew 1 and 2, and in fact, even if we move beyond a little bit, it, it's, he, he communicates that Christ's coming uh, was for the lowly. And it was. But not only for the lowly. In Matthew 2, the Magi remind us that, that people of means took notice of what was going on in Bethlehem as well. The wise men are bringing extravagant gifts. This is one of the reasons we know that the, they are probably not common people. They bring gifts that are fit for a king. Gold, for instance. Even if we don't know what to do with the other things culturally, he's bringing gold. They're bringing gold. And so, yes, a light was revealed to the shepherds, common people. And if anyone is common in, in this society, it is the shepherds. But also to the affluent people of the world. I mean, sometimes today in our society, there really is kind of a polarizing tension, isn't there? There's a whole history behind it. This goes back to the rise of the industrial age. This is not something new, but there is this kind of polarizing tension in which the rich are pitted against the poor. And we feel that in our society. Now, to be clear, it is significant that Jesus was born into a common family, into a common and, and, and a people that would not have in any way been impressive in this society. He's born into humble means. But this doesn't mean that God is unconcerned about the rich. In, in a similar way, slightly different angle, Jesus is born king of the Jews, to be sure. I mean, the text says that explicitly here in chapter 2, verse 2, among other places, right? He is born king of the Jews. But he came not only for Israel. In the story of Epiphany, God manifests the coming of salvation to the Gentiles in a faraway land. And he brings them in. You know, I can only imagine that this speaks directly to the vast majority of us. Having non-Hebrew ancestry. I assume that's most of us. Thank God that he shows love and mercy to people with black skin and brown skin and white skin and every ethnicity. You know, the very makeup of, of our church is just a visual representation that God loves all peoples. And God is reconciling peoples from all tribes and nations. It's a beautiful thing. Matthew tells us that from a faraway land, they sought a light in the sky and they make their way to Jerusalem to find this child king that has been born. Centuries before Matthew ever wrote... Isaiah made this declaration in verse 3 of our text from Isaiah 60. He says, and nations shall come to your light. And they came a long way. It's before modern transportation. They come a long way. Uh, and it, but it makes sense that they would go to Jerusalem first. Have you ever wondered why would they go to Jerusalem first? Well, it's the capital city. They don't have an exact destination of where they're going. But they have enough insight to go, and they ultimately make their way to Jerusalem. Actually, it was an interesting detail. This had never occurred to me until this week. But it's actually Herod who sends them to Bethlehem. Did you notice that in verse 8? Herod tells them, go, go, go to Bethlehem. He's already had this conversation with his uh, religious leaders there. It's actually Herod. And then once they get there in verse 9, they get this more specific direction to an exact location by the star. 
But there's no doubt why the wise men are come. They're quite clear why they come. The text tells us in verse 2, they have come to worship him. Thank God for his grace that he calls people who are far away to come and worship him. And, and it's in this, knowing and loving God, that we find true joy and true peace. Jesus says, come. God directs, come and find joy. Find satisfaction. Find peace. Find that thing that the world is so desperate for and find so difficult to achieve. Peace. But if God directed the wise men to Israel, they, they aren't going to receive any support uh, from, uh, from the king there in Jerusalem. They're, they don't seem to really get support from anybody in Jerusalem for that matter, do they? And there's kind of two storylines that are moving together in these first six verses, six verses. And they finally converge here in verse seven. We've got Herod. We've got his thing going on. We've got the Magi. And then they ultimately converge at this point. And so I began by saying that wise men saw a light inside a king. And now, number two, Herod feared the light and sought its destruction. Matthew gives us a historical setting right off the bat here in verse one. In the days of Herod, the king. In other words, it's just important that we remember, especially with all the different things going on this time of year where we're coming out of the Christmas season. This is not a fairy tale. There's a lot of fairy tale things going on around Christmas, and some of it's fine. But, but Matthew wants us to know he's setting these events in history, in the time of Herod, the king. And everyone knew who Herod was. This is Herod the Great. He ruled in sort of Galilee and Judea, this whole land. He rules there from 37 B.C. till 4 B.C. And, and he's appointed ruler by the Roman Senate himself. He has some Jewish ancestry, but he's sort of a Roman plant. And they're setting him there to rule over the people. He's going to be loyal to their, uh, ultimately to what they would want, their agenda. This is the same Herod who expands and really establishes the temple as it would have been in Jesus' time. So the original temple, Solomon's temple, of course, is destroyed by the, by the Babylonians. It's partially rebuilt in some kind of modest way under the Persians. We know that story with Nehemiah and Ezra and all of that. And, uh, and yet it's, it's a quite humble structure. And then Herod comes in, expands and beautifies, sort of decks out the temple. And this is the temple that would have existed during Jesus' time. Kind of think about that. And you would think, man, this probably would have really given Herod some respect and appreciation from the people in Jerusalem, right? He, he did this to the temple, right? We, we've got to love this guy, Herod. Of course, that's not the case. His rule was tyrannical. We just see later, if you glance down to Matthew 2, 16, how ruthless he could be. He slaughters any and all male ch- children that would have sort of fit this profile that he's looking for. He's so frustrated that the Magi don't come back and tell him. He goes and just says, fine, I'll take care of business my own way. Absolutely a wicked ruler. He ruled by injustice. His rule represents the darkness here. And he will try to do everything he can to oppose this light that has come. The wise men sought a newborn king. But Israel already had a king, if you ask Herod. And even the text calls him Herod the king, right? He wasn't having it. 
Herod kind of gets wind that the wise men are kind of roaming around the city. I mean, we shouldn't be too surprised by this. I mean, uh, even before wiretaps in the 20th century and digital technology today, I mean, kings were really good at having ears everywhere. They would have people placed and make sure and if anything was going on that the king needed to know about, news came to him. And that's, that's ultimately what happens here. I mean, he summons the wise men, but it's like, uh, yeah, you really don't have a, a choice. Come on, I'm the king. And ultimately they're brought in to speak to him. Kings, especially ancient kings, did not take lightly any threat to their power. And, you know, Herod could say, hey, and by the way, I've already got a plan of succession here. I've got children coming along and don't need your help, Magi. Thank you very much. Got this whole king thing figured out. Matthew offers us this interesting contrast here. The reigning king in Jerusalem rejects the light of Christ's coming, but the distant wise men come looking with eager expectation. This is one of the many things in Christ's coming, and there are many others, right, that really just surprise us. Herod assembled the chief priests and scribes to make use of their knowledge of the Jewish messianic hope. And that's exactly what this is. Speaking of this king coming, this is the messianic hope that was very much a part of Second Temple Judaism. Judaism in these, in these centuries after the rebuilding of the temples is very much a part of their faith. And so he asked him, and they don't have to think very long. He says, where's the child going to be born? They go, oh, in in Bethlehem. You've read Micah, haven't you? You're supposed to be our king, Herod. Now, Jesus would eventually grow up in Nazareth, and we know that well. But let the record show, Matthew wants to say, let the record show that he was born in Bethlehem. He's born in the city of David. He might have to sojourn for a season down in Egypt. We'll see that a little bit later in the text if we were to read along. But his ancestry and his birth tie him to the city of David. Interestingly, Herod was not the only one concerned about sort of the stirring in the city. It's another kind of subtle detail in the text. I mean, if you look at verse 3, there are others that are troubled about the news. In fact, Matthew uses hyperbole and says all of Jerusalem. So there are others that are troubled about the news. I mean, a natural question, though, I mean, who are these others in Jerusalem that are troubled? I mean, it, it could be other civil leaders, kind of those that are with Herod. That would make, I mean, perfect sense. But it's, it's not entirely clear from the text. In fact, there seems to be a suggestion that it might be the very religious leaders that he's going to be summoning. That they themselves are troubled. It's, it's an interesting, twisted thing. Ultimately, the text is not entirely clear. But if this were the case, it would be sort of foreshadowing the opposition that Jesus will one day face in that city that ends with him hanging on a cross. Why was anyone troubled about the birth of a child? I mean, it's it's a baby, an innocent, tiny little child. Why was anyone up in arms about this? This was no ordinary child. Returning to this metaphor of light, Herod is an enemy of the light. While the Magi follow the light, Herod is going to seek to extinguish it, really at all costs. But he couldn't. He's going to try, but he can't. The light will not be overcome. And Herod would not be the last. He was not the first and he would not be the last to oppose the light. I mean, again, we think about the opposition to Jesus' ministry that will soon rise, you know, a a few decades later, ultimately. We'll talk more about that. This is not the first, and he will not be the last. 
I mean, we just we clearly need to see here that the, the spiritual forces of darkness are at work here. And there are enemies of the light today. The, the adversary has lost. I mean, that's that's clear. And the adversary knows that he knows that he's lost. But there's there, there will not stop him ultimately from raging against God in every way that he can. Sometimes opposition comes from the state. Think about kind of extreme examples. We can think about in the 20th century when some communist regimes really sought to to extinguish Christianity's absolute best that they could. Doesn't always come from the state. I mean, it, it can come from terrorist groups. We think about. Uh, uh, I just just read actually just uh, this week that 12 Christians were killed in Nigeria for their faith just this last month in December of 2023. Twelve people slaughtered. One of them was a pastor's wife who I believe is still has been taken or, and has not been released yet. The others slaughtered. It's opposition to the light. Heartbreaking. And, and again, those are those seem extreme, but they're real. Sometimes it comes in more subtle ways. It could come from a university classroom. It could come from a podcast. It could come. I mean, Satan is incredibly creative. Opposition to the light comes in many forms. Well, as we step back here and reflect a little bit, this this whole passage and really this whole time of Epiphany that we're thinking about today, it celebrates the triumph of light over darkness. But this is our confidence here. Herod tried to extinguish the light, but it could not be overcome. And even today, the light of Christ shines and it will not be overcome. Herod tries to fool the Magi into sort of helping him. You have to give the guy an A for effort. I mean, he's pretty crafty. Go go find him. I, I want to worship him too. They're like, really? Oh, okay, you know. They leave Jerusalem and they, they have no less zeal than they had when they arrived. They're eagerly looking for the child. He sends them down to Bethlehem. Well, we began by seeing wise men seeing a light and seeking a king. And then we saw Herod feared the light and sought to destroy it. And now here, lastly, number three, the wise men followed the light and found the king. If you look at verse 9, the star appears again, and it guides them really in this direct place, right? Ultimately to, to exactly where they want to go. Have you ever wondered, I mean, I, I'm the curious type, I've wondered, I mean, do you think other people maybe saw the star as well? The text doesn't tell us, so, so we have to speculate. I mean, maybe some people saw the light and just didn't know what to do with it. Ultimately, it's there. It's distinct. But again, they see it. They're... Hearts start beating faster. They're excited. One of them says, look, there it is. They're all eager. They're all excited. And they give the cleanest dap you've ever heard. Each of them all the way around. They celebrated in some way, I'm sure. Okay, And the light tells them exactly where to go. They follow the star and they, they found Jesus in the house with his mother. This is obviously some time after the birth narrative that we see, uh, for instance, in Luke 2. I mean, he's no longer in a manger and that kind of common scene we think about with the animals and so on. He's in a house now. Um, but evidently, they're still in Bethlehem. But before the Magi did anything else, verse 11 tells us they worshipped him. That's why they've come. And this is just a remarkable scene. 
The text tells us they fell down, they bow their faces down, and they worship Him. My prayer is that this would stir our hearts to worship Jesus. You know, how, how did Mary and Joseph respond to this? We, we do get some insight from some others where there's a text that, that tells us that Mary treasured these things in her heart. Here, Matthew doesn't tell us about this specific episode. But, I mean, what a striking scene. I mean, just picture it. Men in fine robes coming into this common home, bearing these kind of gifts, speaking in a foreign language. They're not from Jerusalem. They don't speak Aramaic. They're coming in here, and Mary and Joseph are like, oh, oh, baby, yeah. And they come in, and they worship their son. And again, they do. They give these extravagant gifts. These are luxury goods from the East or from Africa, actually, even. Countries like Ethiopia, Arabia, India, they were the main ones that would have traded these goods, frankincense and myrrh. Gold was more common. Centuries before Isaiah ever, or before um, Matthew wrote this, Isaiah spoke. He said this in the text that we read in verse 6. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. One commentator really, I think, captures the idea well when he says this. He says that the infant king is being glorified by the wealth of the nations. Jesus was the Messiah to the Jews, make no mistake. But all the earth will hear of his glory. And all the earth can come and worship him. Of course, in verse 12 here at the end, they're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Maybe they were already a little suspicious. But this dream warns them. that There seems to be a theme here. I mean, this is really the third time. Uh, really, more, more than three if we start counting these, but, but this is a few times here um, that we see dreams used in this, right? Uh, for instance, Joseph is going to, to have a dream at the beginning when he first finds out that Mary is pregnant. And then he has a dream that tells him to flee to Egypt just a little bit further down in our passage. Well, here the Magi are warned in a dream. And after this account, the wise men pass from the scene. And we never see them again. It'll be 30 years or so. We don't know exactly what time this was, how long had lapsed since his birth. But probably about 30 years before Jesus begins his ministry. And when it does begin, he will be going to the children of Israel. Again, he's explicit about that. That is his mission. But here in this account, we see this foreshadowing of the way that the light of the gospel would go unto the Gentiles and unto all the earth. Epiphany is a season of enlightenment. It celebrates the appearance of the divine light of Christ manifested unto the peoples of the world that had been living in darkness. For those of us who know Christ, my prayer today is that you would come and behold the light of Christ anew today. Come and marvel at the birth of the King. It's not too late. Christmas season is not all the way over. Come one more time and marvel at the birth of the king in Bethlehem. But maybe someone here, maybe someone even watching via live stream, maybe you've not seen the light of Christ yet. Now you know of Jesus. Maybe you've heard the name Jesus countless times. 
And you have some basic knowledge of Christian beliefs. Maybe you have a lot of background in church, and yet it's never been anything more than that. And if that's you, may the light of Christ shine brightly in your heart today. That God might draw you today the way he, drew, he ultimately drew the wise men. This Jesus who was born in Bethlehem came to lay down his life as a ransom to a people who are slaves to sin and guilt. And he rose to bring us into his family so that we could have forever fellowship with him, never to be broken. Jesus is the enduring proof that God loves you. Hear that again today. And for all of us who have received the light, let me give just one more exhortation this morning. Let's go and tell the world about it. We have received it. We have been changed. His light has illuminated our own hearts. Let's tell our neighbors. Let's tell our co-workers. Let's tell our family members. Let's tell uh, classmates, for those of us who are students. Let's go and tell. Let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you, Jesus, that you came. And as we celebrate over this last season, your coming. And as we celebrate here, the light going to the Gentiles. Lord, I pray that you would truly just stir our hearts today. Encourage us. God, maybe there's some people who are struggling and God need a fresh encouragement, a fresh touch from you. I pray, God, you'd bless them today. God, may your light shine in their own hearts and minds. God, I pray you to bless Redemption Church, bless our pastors, bless all of our leaders, bless the work being done across the city. Further that work. May your light shine in this city and throughout the world. And throughout the world. Amen.